Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. It's Will. If you have a few minutes to spare, it would really help us if you could fill out our new listener survey. Over the years, we've heard many stories of listeners using Fresh Ed in their classes and courses and for assignments. Teachers are assigning Fresh Ed on their syllabi, students are using the podcast to complement their course material, and there's even an example of a Fresh Ed transcript being published in a book. In an effort to systematically understand how Fresh Ed is being used and what we can do better, I want to invite you to take our new listener survey. It will only take five to ten minutes of your time to fill out. Your answers and opinions will help shape the future of Fresh Ed. You can find the survey at freshedpodcast.com slash survey. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash survey. Thank you so much for your time and cooperation. We really appreciate your support making Fresh Ed better. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The time frame to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals is tight. We have just over a decade to complete the 169 targets across 17 goals. Target 4.7, which aims for all learners to acquire knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, is particularly challenging. What are the knowledge and skills needed for sustainable development? And how can they be integrated into policies, programs, curricula, materials, and practices? The social-emotional learning supports the academic learning, but at the same time, it has its own clear validity. It is not there simply to to provide a a platform for our academic learning, that it has uh, its own purpose. That's part of the, the purpose of education. My guest today is Andy Smart, a former teacher with almost 20 years' experience working in educational and children's book publishing in England and Egypt. He is a co-convener of a networking initiative called Networking to Integrate SDG 4.7 and Social and Emotional Learning into Educational Materials, or NISM for short. He is particularly interested in how textbooks support pro-social learning in low- and middle-income countries. Together with Margaret Sinclair, Aaron Benavot, Jean Bernard, Colette Chabot, S. Garnett Russell, and James Williams, Andy has recently co-edited a volume entitled Nissim Global Briefs, Educating for the Social, the Emotional, and the Sustainable. This collection aims at helping education ministries, donors, consultancy groups, and NGOs advance SDG 4.7 in low- and middle-income countries. Andy Smart, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's a great pleasure to be here. Okay, so I want to start with a pretty subjective question, let's say. Do you think the Sustainable Development Goals will actually be achieved by 2030? Well, I wish I had the answer to that one. Uh, I wish everybody else had the answer to that one. I'm naturally uh, an optimist by nature, um, but I recognize that these are uh, hugely ambitious across the board. I mean, you know, targets that talk about, uh, you know, ensuring that all girls and boys complete free, equitable and quality primary secondary education. I mean, you know, the word all is a a pretty big word. Even goals like ending poverty. Yeah, I wish. So um, these are hugely uh, ambitious. And I'm, I was interested to see just this uh, past few days how there's been some discussion over the uh, announcement by the, by the bank uh, of their 
Ending Learning Poverty uh, initiative, which is uh, setting what might be called a more more realistic target. And of course, that's been getting a bit of pushback as to, you know, why why dropping back from the the ambitions of the Sustainable Development Goals. So, you know, you travel, hopefully, basically, in this business, uh, you, you arrive uh, as, uh, as far as you can. So you brought up the, the World Bank's annual meeting where they introduced this idea of learning poverty, some metric to measure learning poverty. And this particular show uh, that we're recording now is not about that topic, even though it probably deserves a whole show onto itself. But you said it sort of is it trying to make um, maybe a more a metric that could be achieved. So what is problematic about the SDGs as they're currently written in terms of, you know, being able to achieve them by 2030 that has made the World Bank propose something maybe less ambitious and perhaps more feasible? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, way above my, my pay grade, as, as, as we might say. But uh, I mean, you know, my, my view on, on any kind of, of system change, which I think is, is what we're engaged in uh, within the NISEM team, you know, we're looking at uh system uh changes uh which are scalable and sustainable but you know s- systemic change a- across a country is uh, it means changing the the practices of of thousands sometimes tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people and uh when we are looking at how textbooks impact on on classroom practices we're talking about teachers practices we're talking about all those who support the teachers you know the supervisors head teachers etc we're talking about a lot of people changing the way they do things so that's that's at bottom why i would be cautious about uh, how far you can get within uh, this quite short time so in this new policy briefs that you and your colleagues put together and put out as part of nissim you talk about how sdg target 4.7 is is sort of very critical to the the SDG 4 overall if not all of the SDGs what is SDG target 4.7 briefly well the the shorthand that uh, we tend to use within the the NISM uh, networking team is is the pro social themes and values um so it's looking at uh, a more holistic uh, view of the purpose of, of education. And it's, it's bringing together some of the, the stories that have uh, been going on in the, in the education and development arena for, for decades and trying to group them together in a, in, in a, in a single package. Of course, it, it's very diverse. It, it seems rather sort of unbalanced, sometimes not very clear. On the other hand, I would say you could juxtapose what you find in 4.7 uh, as being the the other side of education. You know, you've got the academic uh, purpose uh, and you've got the non-academic purpose. And I think that's something which resonates for people both uh, in the practitioner community, but also in terms of parents and, uh, and students themselves. You know, that's the reason kids go to school, why parents send their kids to school. It's, it's partly, of course, about getting those academic skills and, uh, and the qualifications, but it's also about a lot more than that. Um, and that's what 4.7 brings together. It's the, it's the pro-social aspects of, uh, of education. And so what would be some of these themes in this pro-social aspect of education or these non-academic areas? What, you know, how would we start to classify what some of these themes would be? 
Well, I mean, you could you could start with uh, you know the, the 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 name of the sustainable development goals um, itself. So the sustainability is a is a clear theme that then needs to be unpacked in all sorts of ways. Um, so sustainability is not simply about you know environmental protection. It's about uh, sustainability across uh, social fabrics uh, and other aspects. It's also about gender equality. It's about uh, cohesion uh, between communities. Um, a lot of the schools that we are targeting in the low and middle income countries and post-conflict countries, which are the, the areas of interest for us in the NISM uh, networking group. These are countries which are, which are challenged by, by social uh, tensions, you know, within the country and as well as refugee tensions, etc. So, you know, social cohesion is, is clearly an important theme and, and promotion of peace and resolution of conflict. So, these, you know, different themes, the social fabric, the gender equality, social cohesion, peace and reconciliation, even the environment. In the policy brief, the term that's often used is this idea of social and emotional learning. You know, I hear that as just jargon and quite vague and very difficult to even begin to comprehend and define. What is social and emotional learning and, and why is it important in the education of young adults and young children? Well, uh, first, I want to thank you for your honesty, Phil. You know, to admit confusion, I think, is a, is a, is a great starting point for any uh, understanding. I think everybody has their different understandings, and that, that's part of the challenge that, that we face. Uh, to some extent, this is, this is due to the terminologies that are used, many of which overlap, and you will find any discussion or any text uh, that is addressing these issues, especially within the you know the the non OECD country context, uh, has to start out by saying, well, we've got all these terms. How do they overlap? Uh, how do we separate them out? What do they mean in these different contexts? So that's going to lead to confusion. That's for sure. Where there is a common understanding, I think, and that's where what's what brought us together within the Nissan team is that although we come from different backgrounds. We all had this sense that what we were doing needed to be uh, rooted in something that was not part of the uh, narrow academic uh, purpose of education, but that was rooted in what we understand to be the meaning of the word learning itself. And so learning, in my view, is often used as shorthand for learning outcomes and learning outcomes as a shorthand for academic achievements. But I think it's critical that we think of learning as a process, not just as, a, as an outcome. And so it's social and emotional learning describes actually how learning happens, as well as the purpose of learning. So that's, this begins to take us into something which is, I think, very important, very interesting, but also quite difficult to grasp unless you have a lot of time to, to unpack it in, in different ways. But uh, separating to some extent, the, the idea of the process of learning from the, the product or the, the, the outcomes of learning, I think is, is very important. So, I mean, it almost sounds like it's a um, philosophical issue here. You know, the purpose of learning, I, I would imagine there is not one universal purpose of learning, that it would be contextualized both within nation states, within governments, but also within households. You know, families probably have very different conceptions of the purpose of learning. Absolutely. I mean, the, there is increasing evidence for 
how the the social and the emotional play a part in in learning, not only in in, in academic uh, learning outcomes, but also in building the more uh, rounded learner and rounded uh, member of society. So a lot of this research is coming out of higher income contexts because that's where research is uh, is better funded. Um, but one of the things that we're trying to do is apply the appropriate uh, evidence and, uh, and results of this research into uh, other contexts. But uh, at bottom, there, is a, there are some universal uh, principles or universal uh, ideas about how learning happens. After all, the child who aged seven in, in one country has pretty much uh, similar developmental processes as a child aged seven in another country. Uh, and in and as far as I'm concerned, I think that uh, the the differences between contexts are very much uh, are more related to the differences in the way the adults operate around the child than in the way the child is is actually following their own developmental path. So, what would be some of these universal principles then of social emotional learning? Yeah, well, that's that's where you get into you know the wonderful world of models, and so uh, I mean we love models. We all love models. I mean they're sort of uh, they have this sort of visual directness that uh, is immediately appealing, uh, unless they're far too complicated, which some of them are. But uh, there are def- definitely you know various models, and it's not too difficult to to sort of bring them together and, and compare them. And again, you know, when commentators uh, or practitioners are, are looking at the different models, it starts. You have to start saying, so what are the common characteristics of these models, and then how do they apply in my own uh, context? But uh, I mean, the the best known model of all is, uh, or the most widely quoted, let's say, is is the one that com- comes out of. Uh, out of uh, out of Chicago uh, and the, you know the Cassell uh, model with these uh, five competencies. Again, the word competency itself is a uh, is a word that needs a bit of uh, a bit of thought. But they have these five competencies, which are you know, the two related to the self or the intrapersonal, which is the you know the self awareness and the self management, and then the interpersonal, the the relations between people. That's the the social awareness and the relationship skills, and then. The fifth uh, competency is the is responsible decision making. That's one of the models, and there are there are several around. They tend to be simplifying because that has to be the nature of a model. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult to grasp. And sometimes you you might think, well, this is a bit too simplistic. So I think that has to be a balance between what these models try to do in terms of. Uh, simplifying and what they have to do in terms of recognizing the complexity of, of what we're talking about. Another idea in the NISM policy brief is about this idea of 21st century skills. And and I'll admit that this also causes some confusion for me um, because it's rather vague. And, you know, why are we talking 21st century skills rather than 20th century skills? Are these skills that people in the 20th century and the 19th century never needed? Why aren't we talking about the 22nd century skills? So, you know, what on earth is that idea? How do we begin to understand 21st century skills? Yeah, I think probably, I haven't done a sort of a, a word count on this, but I think in the NISM Global Briefs, you probably won't find so many references to 21st century skills, at least not necessarily from within the co-editors. It's not a term that we've used a great deal. Uh, I think different contexts have different preferences for the way they think about these 
what may be called sometimes soft skills, what may be called 21st century skills, uh, what we prefer as a way of thinking uh, to call social and emotional learning. I would say my personal view is that very often when people are talking about 21st century skills, first of all, they're talking about, to some extent, uh, vocational or pro-career, pro-work kind of soft skills. Uh, and therefore, it's not something which is as much used in terms of uh, primary education uh, as for secondary uh, and post-secondary education. So I would say 21st century skill, the, the opposite of a 21st century skill might be the, the traditional academic skills. Uh, to some extent, we're back to what we were talking about uh, at the beginning of this conversation. It's about thinking about these different skills areas and different uh, purposes of, of education. Some of that comes from, you know, studies about what employers are looking for. You know, they're not just looking for the, 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 the hard skills, the sometimes people rather disparagingly called, you know, the basics, the reading, writing and so on. But the employers are talking about they need these uh, people skills, these, these 21st century skills. But again, those are very often coming from higher income environments, which are not our main area of focus. So let's turn to some examples here, right? Like, so SDG target 4.7 has this non-academic focus of social and emotional learning, maybe 21st century skills or soft skills, all these other non-academic skills that are valuable and important to the learning process. Now, what does that actually look like in practice? You know, in non-rich countries, what have you found? Can you give some examples of, you know, what even exists today? Yeah. Before I answered that, what I wanted to just underline is that we are not necessarily, we are not promoting the idea that non-academic skills are, are any way more important than the academic skills. So I think the, the big message from the research uh, and the message that we carry is that the two are interrelated and impossible to, to disconnect um, that. And I think this is something which the, the neuroscience is, is very much telling us, uh, and particularly the researcher who we, we uh, interviewed for the Nissan Global Briefs, Mary Helen Imodino Yang at uh, University of Southern California. Um, so this is really about how the social emotional learning in the field of cognitive science and neuroscience uh, supports academic learning uh, and you cannot separate the, the two out. So that's the first thing I wanna say. So coming back to the, to the examples, well, I mean, the examples that we are looking at primarily, as you know, are, are the low and middle income countries. And the reason we're focusing on that is partly because that's where we've always worked all our lives. That's where I started out as a teacher in, uh, in low income countries in government schools. And, uh, and the reason that, that, that the NISM, you know, what we're promoting as a sort of a NISM approach is, is that uh, there are characteristics across low and middle income countries that make them slightly different from contexts of high income countries. One of the differences is the way that the, the curriculum operates. So what's called a curriculum in, uh, in a school in, say, the UK or the US is very often something that is, it belongs to the school. You know, you have you have national curriculum standards or state standards, and then the, the school develops a curriculum within, within that sort of framework. Now, in low and middle income countries, that's different. You know, the curriculum is what comes down from government, from the Ministry of Education, and very often it's what's represented in the textbook. So that's why we see the textbook as so critical to this whole, this whole business, is because the textbook shapes so much of what happens in the classroom in terms of the teaching and learning and the activities and the way of thinking and the pedagogy. So that's something which is 
really characteristic of the low and middle income countries uh, and it's and it's why we are focusing on on textbooks as a as a main vehicle for for the nisim ideas now there's a paper in the nisim global briefs which comes out of my own experience working with the national curriculum textbook board in bangladesh uh, a few years ago where we were asked to work with uh, the curriculum developers who were to some extent also the textbook uh, writers uh, and all the textbooks in Bangladesh are centrally written by the NCTB the National Curriculum Textbook Board uh, all schools use the same textbooks and we were asked to come in and and look at how the textbooks uh, shape what happens in the classroom to improve learning outcomes so this was uh, funded by a uh, cross donor you know sectoral approach and the paper that's in the global briefs talks about what we what we were able to do in terms of the social studies uh, for upper primary and to set out a a different kind of way of teaching and learning in the classroom which we uh, and others uh, have called a structured pedagogy which is not scripting a kind of uh, step by step this is what you should do as a teacher and reducing the teacher's autonomy um to very narrow uh, area but setting out a principle for teaching and learning that will work in a crowded classroom limited number of resources and doesn't push the teacher into something which is a an imported kind of uh, over child centered uh, pedagogy but it's something that takes them into something which is supported by social and emotional learning principles but within an academic framework to achieve better learning outcomes more engagement by by learners and frankly more engagement by by teachers uh, and we've had some great feedback from the teachers who have who have used these books in in Bangladesh so i would imagine this then you know not only changing textbooks in a particular way but i would imagine the preparation of teachers and and how to be a teacher uh teacher training in a sense would similarly have to change to incorporate these social and emotional learning. Yeah, absolutely. And um I don't want to oversell the the power of the textbook to 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 create change. I mean, after all, it it the tool is as good as uh, as uh, as what you do with it. But what we see the textbook as a sort of lever for change, it enables different way of thinking, a different way of supporting a uh, good pedagogy that can be trans translated into into teacher education into the professional development even into the assessment uh, approach but the, the 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 textbooks legitimize approaches this is the i think this is a critical point about how you know the role that textbooks play there's a textbook in every classroom and uh, many cases in every home uh, in in the country and large country like bangladesh that's that's a lot of sort of policy statements and legitimization statements going on and what we found was that the the textbooks that were in use beforehand were really gearing the teacher to teach by rote learning uh that in fact there was really no other recourse for the teacher other than to teach by rote learning for various reasons uh, partly because the language was very dense very very academic too many concepts piled onto the page partly partly coming out of uh, of the curriculum itself and then uh, a textbook writing plan that is based on what i would simply call you know comprehension plus uh so you have a great chunk of text it could be 2 3 pages of text you know uninterrupted text followed by some very narrow gap filling you know right or wrong type answers 
and that's the way that science was, is, was taught in terms of the textbook. It's always social studies, very often language. So the core subjects are being taught in this sort of comprehension plus kind of way. And I would say by comprehension there, we're talking about narrow definition of comprehension. We're talking about comprehension where there is only a right or wrong answer. So what we tried to do is just rethink that text in the textbook so that it is supporting a pedagogy. So that when you open the textbook as a teacher, you, you can see how this could be taught. And this is how teachers across the world, in contexts where they have a chance to, to choose their textbooks, that's how they, they evaluate a textbook. They pick up a textbook, they open it up, and they say, oh yeah, I can see how this would work in the classroom. And they're not only looking at the language level and the quality of the illustrations, but they're looking at how the learning will flow out of the way it's presented in, in the materials. So that's what we're trying to do in an appropriate way for the context that we're working in. And have you found any challenges? I mean, it seems like, you know, here's a group of foreign experts coming into a country and saying, you know, based on these globally circulating policies and ideas, this is the, you know, a more appropriate way to design a textbook or, you know, have teachers' pedagogy implemented in a classroom. You know, so in a sense, you know, mm -hmm. th there must be challenges. There must be, it must be deeply political since education is a deeply political process, particularly at the national level. And if textbooks are being centrally mm -hmm. created, I mean, even more so. So, you know, I just wonder, have governments been open and receptive to some of these ideas that have been sort of externally brought into some of these countries? So I think uh, that's a really important question, Will. And, you know, uh, people working in this sector need to proceed with humility. We need to recognize that uh, we're coming from outside. We don't bring answers. We bring different ways of thinking and we proceed through partnership, collaboration, discussion, etc. On the other hand, I would say that even if we might talk about something looks like the global north on the one hand, the global south on the other hand, each of those uh, communities represents, you know, a wide range of, of different perspectives. So when we're talking to partners, in government, there are going to be people with very different ideas. They're going to be policy makers, they're going to be curriculum directors, they're going to be curriculum writers, textbook writers, teachers. Then they're going to be teachers in urban areas and rural areas who are going to have quite different ways of thinking and, and doing things. So that's, you know, to, we have to reflect as far as possible a huge range of, of perspectives and and needs i mean i'll give you an example so sometimes you know i'm sitting in the office of a of a curriculum uh, directorate in a particular uh, low middle income country and looking at you know what role teachers experienced teachers are playing in the process of you know contributing to textbook development or textbook evaluation so that the materials that are being uh, provided actually are fit for purpose and they've been designed with teachers needs in mind and quite often you get a bit of pushback in those curriculum directorates because uh, they're often you know quite senior people they've had strong academic backgrounds they're in very comfortable government jobs and they're not thinking necessarily about how the teacher in the rural areas thinks about things and they're not necessarily valuing how those teachers in rural areas uh, think about things uh, and maybe just don't trust the teachers to make good decisions you know they don't trust the teachers judgments and i think that's part of the the issue so i think 
yes, we need to be humble about our own expertise or what we define as our own uh, expertise and experience. But we also need to ensure that the different voices are brought into that, that conversation at every point and not just at the sort of high level policy discussion level, you know, at every point in, in the chain, which takes us into the classroom in the, in the rural and, uh, and semi-rural areas of, of the country. I guess, you know, this idea that there's all these different voices and there's sort of this political process that goes into the creation, the reform of textbooks, of teacher training, of all different aspects of the education system, it would also necessarily mean that the measurement of these, you know, outcomes of academic and non-academic skills, you know, would sort of go through this same political process and then therefore be different in each country. And then the question that I have then is like, how then do you begin to think about measurement of social and emotional learning on a global level that is comparable if these measurement indicators are being sort of debated within each nation with a different set of politics? Yeah, I think that is fundamental. And that for us is is a really testing question within NISM because to some extent we are really still trying to develop what you might call a proof of concept. And uh, by proof, we normally expect to see evidence, not just sort of uh, argumentation. So evidence uh, and, and measurements, I think, I think we need to think about it in different ways. So what some people expect from measurement is, is something more related to accountability. What other people expect from measurement is more related to evidence that you can build on in order to improve what you're doing. So I think this takes us back to some extent to the way that measurement uh, and assessment are used in classrooms. You know, there is uh, the idea of summative and formative assessment. And I think when we're thinking about measurement of, of the impact of social emotional learning, we have to think about it to some extent in that same sort of way. So measurement for, for learning how to do things better as, as planners, as policymakers, as uh, curriculum specialists, um, yeah, I think it's very possible to create a, a, a system for measuring something that is culturally rather, let's say, contextualized, uh, but um, conforms to, to good practices in terms of reliability and validity and uh, is a combination of different uh, measurement instruments. So to some extent, observation, to some extent, self-reporting, to some extent, testing. So I think that's all very possible. But of course, that's that's uh, intensive and, and quite expensive uh, and has to be done on a, on a sampling basis. Then the other kind of measurement, which is sometimes what uh, comes to mind for, for some uh, in some discussions is, is you know, measurements as system-wide accountability uh, and being treated in the same way that, that academic uh, learning outcomes would be measured and, and which, you know, allows you to, to say whether the system as a whole uh, is benefiting from, from the inputs that you're providing. And I think that's, that's more problematic. And I, I think that takes us back a little bit to what we were saying earlier, which is, you know, the relationship between academic learning and social and emotional learning, that the social emotional learning supports the academic learning, but at the same time, it has its own clear validity. It is not there simply to to provide a, a platform for our academic learning, that it has uh, its own purpose. That's part of the, the purpose of education. Um, so when we're measuring the academic outcomes, to some extent, we're measuring the impact of the social emotional learning, but at the same time, 
for us at least in, in NISM, we would like to be able to do more to show proof of concept and to show through more intensive, more diverse uh, measuring processes and instruments that providing social and emotional learning inputs really can make a difference, not only to the academic learning outcomes, but also to long-term engagement with learning to produce lifelong learners, not learners who are simply able to pass the, the end of month or end of term or end of year exams. And do you think this will all be possible in the next 10 years? Uh, define this, Will. <laughs> define <laughs> I, I guess, you know, what NISM is sort of, you know, there, this proof of concept is step mm -hmm. one, but, you know, obviously moving forward is that there would be some system level reforms happening in line with SDG 4.7. And, you know, the goals are concluding in 2030. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't seem like that long for the, the type and extent of change that is being discussed. Yeah. Yeah, huge, huge challenge. What I would say is this, that we sense that there is an enormous receptivity to these ideas at, uh, at the level of uh, policy strategy, both in the global north and uh, as far as we can see in the global south. Uh, we were encouraged by the responses that we were getting in presenting the global briefs at the World Bank and the Global Partnership for Education recently. So that, to some extent, to that part, we've, we feel that there is a, an acknowledgement that these are important issues that, that could make a difference. How do we turn this into a proof of concept? How do we embed what we want to do in the textbooks and curricula of the countries that we are concerned about? I guess one by one is, is, the, quest, is, is the answer to that. So what we are looking to do is to, to show in a small number of countries that uh, here is a different way of doing things. Here, are some of the, uh, here is some of the evidence that shows uh, peers to be working. Obviously, the timescale is very short. And then to, to expand from there. If we were able to achieve um, a large uh, a number of changes in terms of textbooks and curriculum in a large number of countries within the next 10 years, uh, and that the momentum is clearly moving in the right direction, and those who have adopted this approach are able to show that it is making a difference to them, and to to impress those who have not yet adopted the approach, I would say that would be tremendous progress. And obviously, our part is just a tiny part in the overall drive to to achieve uh, as much as possible under the SDGs in this very short time. Well, Andy Smart, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Will, the pleasure was all mine. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Andy Smart is a co-convener of NISM. His latest co-edited volume is entitled NISM Global Briefs, Educating for the Social, the Emotional, and Sustainable, which is available for free online. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes, it really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.